Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Pastor's Class. Hopefully you grabbed a handout. Uh, but we will deal with both of these topics tonight, uh, walking through, looking at uh, Jesus Christ crucified, dead, and buried, and then he descended into hell at the very end. We'll talk about that phrase. Uh, in particular, we'll focus m mostly on the crucifixion, and then we'll talk a little bit about the scriptures, how it talks about all three of those. Most of the night, I'll spend talking about crucifixion of Christ, that covers all of these components. Last week, dealt with the suffering of Christ, really leading all the way up to the cross. And so thinking of all the sufferings he went through, how he suffered in our place, we think about how there is the penal substitutionary atonement. We talked about substitutionary suffering last week, how he substituted in our place his suffering. And so he suffered in our place as well as died in our place. But tonight we're going to focus on the cross of Christ. In many ways, it is central to the Christian faith. If you think about images that we have, you know, we're particular as Baptists, and even from our history, you go into our worship center, we don't put pictures up around the room of Jesus or other things that might take your eyes off of worshiping the Lord. We come in the room not to worship an image or something we look at, we come in there to worship a living God, right? We don't, we don't want to focus on those things. But in our worship center, center, we do have one symbol. Think of all the things we might put up. It's the cross. Central to our faith. In many ways, if you look at this entire creed, you think about phrases that are as crucial to our faith. The fact that he was crucified, dead and buried is a key part of what we believe. If we were to rank some things in here, this is at the very center of what we believe as Christians. That Jesus Christ was crucified. It's central to our faith. But before we get to maybe the positive sides of the cross, I want to look at maybe how the world sees it. And in particular, we've talked a lot about with creeds, the reason we need to state what we believe oftentimes is because we have a world that is questioning our beliefs. So when we stand on these things and say, I believe this, this, and this, we're making a stand in a culture that doesn't accept these things. And in fact, the cross is one of those things that's, that's offensive to people. And so let's walk through. I just have a couple of points here for you. The first one being the foolishness of the cross. The foolishness of the cross. That's not a term. I don't want to be in any way blasphemous to the cross. In fact, the Bible says this is how the world sees it. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 there. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. People don't just live indifferent to our faith. People live as enemies of the cross. You think about all the things of our faith, and when I say the cross is central to what we believe, but it's also central to the offense to the world. People will see the cross, if they're not Christians, and become enemies of it. They will want to attack it. It's, in many ways, familiar to us. You know, you go to church for a lot of your life. Many of you... Um, we wear a cross around your neck, a necklace. 
Maybe, maybe like we said, we have it up outside our church and we have it inside our church. Many of you, maybe if you go around your house, you'll have a cross sitting somewhere in a decorated manner, you know, on a wall or on a table or a bookshelf. Even on the front of your Bible, it might be engraved somewhere. So the cross is, is common to us. So it's easy for us to lose just how scandalous and abrasive crucifixion actually was. Cicero, the historian, wrote that most, it was the most cruel and terrifying penalty. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian who would have seen, had actual friends that he'd seen crucified, said it was the most pitiable of deaths. We have so much affection towards it, oftentimes we lose just how terrible of a thing it was. I want to read something to you from someone kind of describing, this is a quote uh, from another book I was reading on uh, the Apostles' Creed, but it's a description of the cross. I like to just, just think of it as I read it to you. Maybe it'll help take some of the familiarity of it off. It represented the acme of the torturer's art. There were atrocious physical sufferings, the length of torment, the effect of the crowd gathering to witness the long agony of the crucified. Nothing could be more horrible than the sight of this living body, breathing, seeing, hearing, still able to feel and yet reduced to the state of a corpse by forced immobility and absolute helplessness. We cannot ever say the crucified person writhed in agony, for it was impossible for him to even move. Stripped of his clothing, unable to even brush away the flies that fell upon his wounded flesh, already lacerated by the preliminary scourging, he was exposed to the insults and the curses of the people who can always find some sickening pleasure in the sight of the tortures of others. A feeling which is increased and not diminished by the sight of pain. The cross represented miserable humanity reduced to the last degree of impotent suffering and degradation. The penalty of crucifixion combined all that the most ardent tormentor could desire. Torture, degradation, the certain death distilled slowly, drop by drop. I read that so that we would look at the cross and understand what a terrible thing it was. And it, we look at it with this great affection, but if, if you were around first century Roman, you would look at a cross and see an electric chair. And worse, an electric chair might be a humane way of seeing somebody instantly pass. This was a long, torturous humiliating death that somebody would go through. So when somebody says that you would look at the cross, look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So you can imagine how somebody might look at a cross and think that your Savior died on that thing that was humiliating, it was the place of criminals. 
wasn't a place you would want to be if you were a proud person. So you can see how somebody might look at that and say, what a foolish thing for somebody to die on the cross. So when it says he was crucified, Jesus is identifying and becoming the very sacrifice for us. Now, in particular, uh, this, the cross is a stumbling block, the Bible says, for a couple groups. Look at it there um, in the rest of 1 Corinthians 1. I'll start reading in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And here's the phrase, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's think first about the Jewish mind. Paul says here, it is a stumbling block for a Jew. If you were a Jew and you were to see someone hung on a cross, you might think back as the scripture points to in Deuteronomy 21, where it says, cursed is the man who was hung on a tree. When you see somebody hanging from a cross, your immediate thought is not, Here's the Savior. You think, here's the cursed one. Here's one who has taken on the curse of sin. And you think, if you think New Testament, and think, what were the Jews looking for? A conquering Messiah. Somebody to come in and bring and lead the nation to restore who they were. So why would you want some guy that's just going to die on a cross? Does it fit the bill? Herein lies, herein lies the problem. If you see the cross, if you see a Savior as someone who's just going to come in, take what you do, and just make it better. In other words, a Savior is going to come in, take the people, and just make their lives better, then that's not the Savior that's coming. The cross was not that. In fact, who was Jesus? He's the one who comes in and says, your lives are sinful, and therefore I need to die in your place. So at core, now follow me here, the cross is a stumbling block if you in some way think you are a good person. Because if you just need a Savior to come and make it better, the guy on the cross isn't your person. In fact, you don't even think that you deserve to be up there. You can't identify that the reason he's on the cross is because you're sin. That takes you saying, it's not that I just need somebody to make me better. It's that I need a savior to pay for my sin on the cross. So if you're somehow prideful thinking your works are going to get you there along with Jesus, then a cross isn't the way to go. In fact, for the Jew who would have been thinking that, it was a stumbling block. It tripped them up. Because they never saw themselves as ones who deserved death. So that's for the Jewish mind. Look at the phrase there. He said, look for the Gentiles. It's folly. 
folly to the Gentiles. It doesn't make sense to the mind that crucifixion would actually be the way in which you would be saved. It doesn't, doesn't naturally go to say, I think that the way I'm going to be saved is a person dying a criminal's death in a torture device, publicly humiliated in front of everyone. It's not how you see it. Justin Martyr described it this way. They say our madness consists in the fact that we put a crucified man in second place after the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of the world. In other words, it's crazy to think that we're going to call this crucified man God himself. Think about it today in terms of if we had a savior who died a torturous criminal's death, you think that's the person we're going to pick and say is God. It seems backwards. And so for the world, when they look, sacrifice doesn't make sense to them. In fact, the idea that you need someone to pay the penalty in your place from the wrath of God, that there needs to be a sacrifice in your place, does not make sense to the world. Even for some Christians. I've talked about this before in here, but um, the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, that somebody had to pay the, pay the price with the wrath of God in your place, is rejected by even some people that would claim Christianity. Back several years ago, uh, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church USA, which has uh, abandoned the inerrancy of scriptures and has drifted in a liberal line, in their hymnal, they had the hymn, In Christ Alone. In that hymn, it says, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For us, that's, you think that is the gospel. Well, it was brought up to the presbytery to say, do we want to keep this in our hymnal because no longer do we believe in a God who needs a sacrifice to appease his wrath? And so they brought it up. They actually, they actually suggested a modification. This is what they wanted to sing. To on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, I could probably sing that too, right? When I see Jesus die for me, I see just how much he loved me, right? I can sing it, but the problem would be is that they couldn't sing the other. But what's even crazier about it all is they put that substitution in and they still wouldn't take it. Completely barred that hymn from their hymnal. Took it out. Because they saw sacrifice as offensive. That a God that needed his wrath appeased was offensive. Another one that uh, Moeller talks about in his book, and often people will look at it and say, why is it that God the Father would kill his son? He used the phrase that the, the world will say, God is a cosmic child abuser. Why if he, can he say if he loves his son? How, how can you say this is a God of love if he lets his son, if he, if he makes his son die? You know, it's interesting, the Bible constantly talks about the love of the Father for the Son. But to even press it further, you say, did God make Jesus die on the cross? Did the Father, the, the Father planned it, but then it says 
in John 10 that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, even though it was planned by the Father, chose to lay down his life. He was never forced to do it. It was his submitting to the will of the Father that he did it. So you say, what kind of God did that? Well, it's the God that his son was willing to die in your place. Nobody forced Jesus. Jesus did it because he loved us. You know, another interesting interpretation of the cross is some uh, see it as a great moral lesson. I think this is, you know, we get desensitized the more we see crosses. It's amazing if you think about how horrific some of my early descriptions were. I don't, I don't want to indulge in that too much, but I want us to understand exactly how horrific it was. But how many people in our culture that have no idea really what it's about will put a cross on a tattoo or on a necklace or wherever, somewhere in their house, and think of it just as decorative. It's a piece of art. They don't understand what it was a torture device that was Christ saving us. And so you get desensitized, and there's this, uh, this is how Moeller described it. The gospel of sentimentality preaches that the cross merely transforms us by example into more loving creatures. So what the cross is is just some sort of inspiring example that helps press us. And so we should say, Jesus was selfless, and so I'm just going to, I, because he did that, I need to follow his example. That's a minimizing of what's actually happening at the cross. Because the world, when they see God himself dying in the place, they see folly. They see, for people, how in the world can you believe this? How in the world can you believe that your Savior, your God, actually died on such a horrific apparatus how in the world can you see this but but for us as christians we see this cross completely different so here's how i want to outline for us as christians the, the third thing is here it is a symbol of our faith it, it's something that like i said earlier it sits in our worship service it hangs around your neck it is something you look at knowing what kind of torture device it was but you look at it and understand you see the love of God when you see the cross. Because we see it as central. Notice how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of, and he gives rank here, he says, as of first importance. And what does he say? What I also received, and what is the first thing out of his mouth? Mouth, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He said, here's what's first importance. It is that Christ died for us. The cross is of first importance. He even go on to say that, it, it, that if it, we don't have the cross, we're the most to be pitied of all people, right? It is crucial to what we believe. So it's central. That's why you see it in the worship center. That's why you see it out in front of the church. That's why you see it central to our faith. Here's the a, here's a second thing. It's scandalous and shameful.
Why would you identify with such a terrible thing? Remember 1 Corinthians 1? I think you have it on your paper there. Remember what it said in verse 18? You flip back and look at it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but listen to what it looks like to the Christian. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what do you see when you see the cross? You don't see God identified in power, but you now see power in weakness. You see strength in suffering. You see victory in sacrifice. You now see that even though somebody was crucified, that death has now been defeated. What was actually an enemy to you, now is the power of God in your life. Look at how even Jesus approaches the cross in Hebrews 12. As terrible as it is, look at this phrase. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In this, when we look at the cross, we see something that, even though it was suffering, it was for the joy that was set before Christ when he sees the cross. Here's a, here's a third thing. It is to glory that we see the cross. What does Paul actually have to glory in in his life? What, what, does, what is he proud of? In, in Paul's life, if, is he going to walk around bragging about his tent-making abilities? Is he going to walk around talking about all the places he's been, the cities he's visited? Look at what Paul says, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified in me and I to the world. He'll say in Philippians 3 that whatever gain he has is lost so that he may gain Christ and his suffering. To him, what he has to boast in is the cross. That is the glory that he lives in, is the cross of Christ. I'll give you one more here, love. Uh, for the cross, we, we have this glimpse just how great God's love is for us. I read this, I think, years ago, reading... I mentioned this last week, John Stott's Cross of Christ. In it, I read about the duality of the cross of Christ. As you approach it, there is this great wrath of God that is met with the love of God. So you ask yourself, how is it when I see this wrath of God, you begin to think, does God hate? And then how do I look at this and see, does God Love, and Stott's point, is in that moment on the cross when you see there was no other way to appease the wrath of God, you can see just how much God loves you. Because as you look and the greater you see God's wrath and suffering and the deeper that goes... His love should carry to the same exact depth. 
of understanding just how much he had to love you to be on that cross by understanding just how much his son had to pay for your sins. So in many ways, the cross shows the peak of the wrath of God while showing the peak of the love of God all at the same time. Several things about the cross. Now I want to talk about these three phrases. Crucified, dead, and buried. Moeller used John chapter 19. I thought it would be good for us to read some of it. Simply to put these three pieces into place historically. The first one is crucified. John chapter 19, I'll read verse 14. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. So Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Amazing here. This should be the God's people receiving their king. In fact, in this moment, reject the king they should be taking and claim an earthly king. What a mistake. Verse 16. So he delivered them. Pilate, reluctantly here, seems to deliver them over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. He went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Moeller said, your sin, my sin, and all the sin of all God's people held him there on that cross. Jesus was crucified for us. Not only was he crucified, not only was he crucified, he died. He was dead. Look at the end of John, John 19. I have verses 28 and 30 there for you. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Then a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch held it to his mouth, and when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Jesus died. Greek term, or when he says it here, to telestai. It is finished. It's done. He has completed the task. At this point, salvation is done. doesn't have to do anymore. At his death on the cross, salvation is complete. Now, one of the things that the gospel writers give us that may oftentimes not be thought a whole lot of is the fact that he was actually buried. Because he, he could have died and just immediately come back but but to really know he was dead we had a period of time that made it very clear jesus was dead notice the end of john 19 here 38 to 42 after these things joseph of arimathea who was a disciple of jesus but secretly for fear out of the jews asked pilate that he might take away the body of jesus so pilate gave him permission 
So he came and took away his body. And then it's interesting here, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. Just to pause here, I, I was noticing this today. You think, it, this is a, a king-like burial? He's treating him like a king? What kind of faith did Nicodemus have to come and do this right here? I, this had to be the most testing moment, right? The moment, if you were to think, this guy's not, not really it. This is it. You could have thought he's on the cross, he's going to, up there, he might pull some angels out, something could happen, he's done miracles all this time, all these great things this guy's done. But at this point, he's lifeless. He's dead. No pulse, no breath. And somehow, Nicodemus comes to bury him. Anyway, verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen cloths with the spices as it was as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had been, yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Just pause for a moment and take that in. Jesus laid there, dead. Uh, just to make the point I think the Apostles' Creed makes here. We talk a lot about the crucifixion of Jesus. We talk a lot about the resurrection of Jesus. But, but we don't need to miss the fact that he was dead and he was buried. This is a crucial portion in the middle that shows he really did die. It really did cost him his life to pay for your sin. But he really did rise again. That's the next phrase we'll get to after I deal with this next one. But then that poses us a question, and we'll deal with it the last few minutes here looking at it. Okay, when Jesus is laying there, his body is not breathing and dead, where is he? <laughs> right? Where does Jesus go for these three days before he rises again. There's a phrase here in the Apostles' Creed, and uh, it says the phrase, he descended into hell. I'd like to take a minute, like to explain a few things out of it, and talk a little bit about what we believe about Jesus during this time. So let me, let me say short answer. I'll just get it out there, and then I'll unpack some things. Short answer. Jesus did not go to hell to pay for our sins during those three days. Everybody can take a sigh of relief right now. <laughs> However, he did go to what we might call the realm of the dead. In the sense of, like when we go, we'll go to an intermediate state. To either be with the Lord or to, to wait on the final judgment. Wherever you land, there is this intermediate state before we enter into the final heaven, the final hell. However... In this moment, we speak of the realm of the dead. So when this phrase, descended into hell, came into being, so let's talk a little bit about the Apostles' Creed for a moment, how it got in here. 
again, when we read the Apostles' Creed, it's not the Bible. So we don't have to treat it like the Bible, right? I don't have to sit here and say this is inerrant, because it's not. The Apostles' Creed was formed. It wasn't like some of the other creeds that just showed up, had it, decided on it one time. Over time, it was formed. So anywhere from about 200 A.D. all the way to about 750 before the final uh, version we deal with today was really put in place. So over the years, different phrases were added, and it was kind of pieced together over the years with the church, putting this core belief together. So then the, phrase, the question comes is, when did this phrase, descended into hell, actually make it into the Apostles' Creed? So uh, the first official time, there's, here I'll say it like this, there was only one time before the year 650 that this phrase even showed up in the Apostles' Creed. So early versions of this did not have this phrase. If you go back to the previous time it was actually placed in, about 390, the guy who puts it in there actually writes what he meant by it. And when he says this phrase, again, it makes a, when you get it all the way to English, it doesn't make all the translation. But when he says the phrase, he's just simply meaning that he was buried. He didn't mean that Jesus actually went down to hell and was in eternal punishment for our sin. So even the first guy that we have recorded writing this into the Apostles' Creed doesn't mean that he's in hell for three days. Now, over the years, as the church picked this thing up, we've had various pieces pick up and actually say, people say he actually went to hell and paid for sins. But we must be careful not to go beyond what the Bible teaches. So let me break it down for you in this manner. There are a couple of different words in the New Testament that speak about the afterlife. In particular, the word we would be referencing here would be the word Hades, or the realm of the dead. There's another term, Gehenna, which speaks particularly about hell and suffering. That's not where we're talking about where Jesus was. We're saying Jesus was just dead, or in the realm of the dead. In fact, he, he did actually die. We'll talk a little bit about exactly where he went. But he did not go, so when, when even the Apostles' Creed is referring to this, we're not, even when we write this, referring that he's actually going to Gehenna or hell. This term of Hades or Old Testament word Sheol is the realm of the dead. And not always in the phrase. So let me give you a couple more things. <clears throat> he did not go there to pay for sins. Why? How can we know that? A couple of things. I just read it a minute ago. Jesus is on the cross. He checks the box and says, it is finished, right? There's no more need to pay anything. It's done. So there's no reason to think that he's going to go down to hell for two or three days and then pay for our sins. Second thing I'll mention about it is why would you think that two or three days in hell could actually pay for an eternity there? That's not the transaction. The transaction is there's a spotless, sinless Lamb of God that died in our place. That, that's how we're saved. It's not that somehow he paid a certain price in hell. Wasn't enough. There's a couple more uh, scripture reference that really take us there. Many of you are familiar with this one. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 43, when he's with the two thieves on the cross, one of them professes faith, and he looks at him and he says, Today, you will be with me in paradise. So, so he says, 
today. I, he, he's not going down to hell. He's, he's going to be there in paradise or this state with the Lord. And even one more phrase there in verse 46 of Luke 23, he'll say, into your hands I commit my spirit. So when he dies, his spirit goes right into the Father's hands. He, he's not going somewhere else. He's going right into the Father's hands. Now, just to mention a couple more things about this, there are a few verses that people get latched onto that connect to this. I just like to talk about, I'll talk about them quickly. I'm not going to go to each one and unpack, but I'll just give you my short answer to a couple of them. The first, probably the main one that people know of is 1 Peter chapter 3, where it talks about uh, Jesus going to the spirits in prison and preaching to them. And it sounds like he goes to hell and preaches to spirits. Uh, it, it may be, <laughs> I was talking to Brian Davis and I were talking about this over here, and we were trying to think of, is there a harder passage in the entire New Testament of the Bible to interpret than 1 Peter 3? And I, I, I'd be, be hard-pressed to find one, right? It is a, is a difficult passage. Now, and so we want to be careful here, and this is a good rule of thumb, we should not take difficult passages and make our theology off of them. Right? In other words, you might say, this, this seems hard to read, so I'm going to build my whole theology off. So all that being said, the best way I would encourage you to read it, there's multiple options, I'll give you one good one, is to think of it, it says, it says Jesus preaching, and it uses the word Noah, and what he would say is it's like Jesus was preaching to the people of Noah's time through Noah. So that's the best way I know how to read it. Uh, it's not, not, maybe not the plainest reading, but if you just say Jesus is preaching to the spirits through Noah, that's probably the best way to read 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, a couple of other ones, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 8 and 9, talks about him going down to the depths. You can just simply read that as the incarnation of Christ, him coming down to earth. Um, Romans chapter 10, there's a couple of questions there uh, about him descending. Uh, you could read those as hypothetical questions. And so there's several verses that are, people will try to take this direction. I, none of them make you have to believe Jesus actually went to hell to pay for our sins. And in fact, what I just took you to was two or three passages that seem really plain that Jesus did not go to hell when he died. That Jesus just... He died. So I, I don't want to miss the fact, and that's why I go back to the, the tomb, is that Jesus actually did die. So there is an actual death. And so in many ways, when you, when you see that phrase, he descended into hell, he actually descended into death. He actually died. Went into the realm of death. So that is uh, the short answer on how to read something like he descended into hell. So here's the two, here's the two options. Should this be in the Apostles' Creed? Good little debate to have. Um, a couple of things. If you want to read it in regards to what I just said, Moeller's position is yes. He said it's great in there. He said you can read it as he descended into death. It's fine in the Apostles' Creed. I was reading uh, Wayne Grudem today, and his comment would be, it might be better if it wasn't there. Either one's fine. It's probably the most, in my mind, the most controversial phrase of what we're looking at here. Uh, but ultimately, just knowing he did not actually go to hell for three days 
and suffer more for your sins because it was already finished. That's the most important part you can walk away with from here. So anyway, I'm sure there's uh, plenty of thoughts on that one. Uh, but I would like to close this up in a word of prayer, and uh, then we can uh, get on to picking everybody up for a while. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the cross tonight. Lord, we do see just what our sin cost. Lord, in all our pride and arrogance, we understand that we are sinful people. And we understand that a shameful death is what we deserved. But Lord, we thank you that we had a substitute, an advocate, one who stood in our place, came, died on a cross, and was buried, was raised again for us. Lord, tonight we thank you for that great gift. May we see the cross, may it humble us to understand just how deep our sin is. Lord, may it, may it encourage us to understand just how much you love us tonight. Just how much you cared for us that you would come here, live this life, suffer in our place, and die for our sins. And Lord, we're thankful for your defeat over death so that we might have eternal life with you. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his, his name we pray. Amen.